John chapter 4. I was reminded this week of a story that came out in the Chicago Tribune several years ago about a guy named Bill Mallory. Some of you may have heard of Bill Mallory, many of you probably have not. But Bill Mallory was a guy that decided that he was going to go on a quest to discover his purpose in life. And so he went on this quest to discover his purpose in life, and he was constantly looking, and finally he he went all the way to India, thinking that a trip to India, a pilgrimage, would give him the answers, and it didn't. So he came back to America and was driving around, kind of disgruntled that he couldn't find his purpose in life, when suddenly he drove by a Chevron gas station. And the Chevron gas station said on a sign, while you're traveling, ask us. And so he decided he would begin to do that. Every time he went to Chevron and he got gas, he began to ask the attendant, listen, I'm a traveler. You said to ask you a question. What is the purpose in life? He said the first time that he went, and these are actual answers that he got, the clerk looked at him and he said, what is the purpose in life? And the clerk said, "Uh, sir, I'm new here. I don't believe they've told me that yet. The second one said, Sir, I would have to go back and look at my manual to see if I could find it. The third said, I'm not that big into church, but maybe someday you can find that somewhere else. And the fourth, he said, just gave him a kind of a weird glance and winked at him. So he's not real sure what that meant. After doing this for several weeks, he finally got a phone call from the customer service representative of the Chevron Corporation. And they said, well, I understand that you have been going around to our places and that you've been asking the question of our attendants and the answer has not been satisfactory. And so what I would like for you to do, sir, is to write down your question on a sheet of paper, mail it in to us, here is the address, and include a self-addressed stamped envelope and we will return you when we've read the question and can answer it. So he did that. Got out a sheet of paper. He wrote, what is the purpose in life? Signed it. Put it to the exact address that had been said. Wrote about the phone conversation. Sent it off to him. Two weeks later, he went to his mailbox, and there was a letter from the Chevron Corporation. He thought, they answered my question. So he went, and he opened it up, and he opened it up to a typed letter that said, thank you for your inquiry into our company. Did you know you could save 10% on gas with this credit card application? The only thing included in there. People all over seem to be searching for purpose. For what it is that God has created us to do. And this morning, we are going to talk about the number one purpose for which God has created us. And as a result, if it is the number one purpose for which God has created us, then it ought to be the number one purpose that we as a church are striving after, are living for, are going after. John chapter 4. Now in John chapter 4, let me just say that what's happening here is that Jesus is encountering a Samaritan woman. Many of you remember the story. I'll give you a quick, quick background. Jesus is, is with his disciples, and he says, we've got to go through Samaria. Now, you'll remember the Jews and the Samaritans didn't like each other. They were racially different. The Jews saw the Samaritans as people that had given in, that had gone to the north, that had married with people they shouldn't marry, and they only did parts of the Old Testament. They didn't do the whole Old Testament. They only did parts 
of the worship service, and they did it in a different place, so they didn't like them. They didn't talk to each other. They didn't associate with each other. They didn't live together. But Jesus says we've got to go through Samaria. And so he goes through Samaria, and he gets there midday at the water place, and he tells the disciples to go out and find something to eat or to find something to come back to him. And while he's sitting there, this woman comes, and the encounter begins. Jesus begins to talk to her and says, Can I get a drink? She says, Why are you asking me for a drink? You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. You're a man. I'm a woman. That's not something you're supposed to do. And Jesus says, listen, if you knew who I was, you would ask me for a drink, and I would give you a drink of eternal life. You'd never thirst again. She says, wait a minute. Where can I find that? And then Jesus begins to turn the conversation and says, well, just go get your husband. And this lady that Jesus is talking with, interacting with, having a a discussion with says, I don't have a husband, to which Jesus responds, you're right, you don't. You've had five, and the man you're living with now is not your husband. She realizes that she's in the presence of not an ordinary person. You know what's interesting about what she does? Is that whenever the discussion becomes personal about her, she tries to change the subject by asking controversial questions. You ever been in a conversation before? Maybe you've been part of this where someone asks something and it gets a little too personal and you begin to say, well, well, what about that debate the other night? Or what do you think about, and you know a controversial topic that quickly and you can move away from yourself. That's kind of what she did because she says, well, where are we supposed to worship? And what Jesus does in this passage of Scripture is he says that what he's going to do is he's going to teach her about worship, but in the process also confront her with who she is. John chapter 4, verses 23 and 24. We're going to look at a little bit more of that passage, but just 23 and 24 are going to be on the screen or on your handout. Jesus responds to her and says, A time is coming, or believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and His worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. Now, to be honest with you, there's a lot of double talk. Worshipers, spirit, truth, worship. There's a lot of that in there. We're going to cut through that in a minute, but I want you to see... Before we begin with the teachings on worship, three common misunderstandings that Jesus talks against in the midst of this. Three common misconceptions that were then there then and are here now. And the first one is that worship is about externals. That's the first misconception. She asked the question, where are we supposed to worship? And he says, listen, it's not about where you worship. That's not the deal. That's not the question. That's not what you're wanting to find out. That is not the major issue. He says right from the beginning that, that, listen, you're wanting to know about exterior stuff. The major issue in worship is not external stuff. Now, here's how that plays out. Worship really isn't about the building. Worship isn't about... uh, what the program has in it. It's not about the platform that you're on. It's not the microphones that are used. It's not the pews that you sit in. It's not the clothes that you wear. Let me just tell you real quickly. God doesn't look down and approve your worship based on the things that you wear on your body. 
Now today, I'm dressed a little differently than normal, mainly because I knew it was going to be 125 degrees standing right here. Right? But I want to tell you that God doesn't look down on me today and say, well, he's not as much of a preacher because his sleeves don't go all the way to the wrist. He doesn't. Now, I know that over the last hundred years, we've made it to where we think that, though. We've made it to where we, we think that it's about how we look when we come, what we present ourselves as. The truth is, in the Old Testament specifically, and Jesus in the New Testament as well, talks specifically about putting on a show or making sure the external looks good when the internal is dry. When he looks at the Pharisees who dressed the right way, who said the right things, that looked the right way, he said, what you are like is a cup that is clean on the outside, but it is filthy inside. What you look like is something that that ought to be good, but when you open it up, it's not. He called them whitewashed tombs. What he's saying is you're the best dressed dead people I've ever seen. A couple of years ago, we uh, one morning, I went to get some milk. Common thing, right? Somebody to get milk in the morning, right? I went to get some milk, and it was in one of those yellow jugs. I don't remember the brand name, but it was yellow because apparently yellow keeps it fresher, keeps all the vitamins in, all that stuff. And I looked on the date. The date said two weeks almost from when I was drinking the milk. Everything was fine. It had been in the refrigerator. I got me the glass of milk. I opened the glass of milk. I poured it in a cup. I took one drink and the stuff was nasty. Anybody ever been there? I mean, just terrible. And I thought to myself, everything looked good on the outside, but inside it was right. God says this worship is not about external stuff. You can have the finest suit on in the world. If your heart's in trouble, God doesn't like your worship. It's not about externals. Here's the second thing. It's not a performance. That's the second misconception. Misunderstanding is that worship is a performance. That you are the audience and we are the actors. Scripture says that what ought to really happen is, and the idea is, that God is our audience. You are the actors, I am the prompter or the director. Then what happens here is that we are to participate together in worship. I know that you're sitting in guys' semi-comfortable pews. And it would seem like we are in a culture that has entertainment all over and that what we ought to be doing here is giving you a good show, telling you the right things, singing the right songs, doing it the professional way. But the truth is, it is not a performance. Here's the third thing. My common misconception is that worship is about us. Rick Warren, pastor at Saddleback Church, talks about letters he receives sometimes about worship. And he says it's interesting because it's usually either one or two things on there that he receives, emails or letters. Either one, people say, I really liked the songs today, so I liked the worship. Or... I really didn't like the songs today, so I didn't like the worship. And Rick Warren makes a pretty bold statement. The first time I read it, it kind of took me back, and now I understand what he's saying, and I tend to agree with it. He says the truth is that there is no such thing as Christian music. There are Christian lyrics. There are Christian words. 
But the music itself isn't Christian or non-Christian. The truth is that what we have to understand is that when we come into this place, it's not about what we like or we don't like. And it's real hard as a worship leader sometimes to remember that. Because the real, the real uh, struggle and temptation is to come up here and to pull off the biggest gadgets and do the coolest illustration and the best this and the best that and have you go, wow. But it's not about us. Worship is completely about Him. The problem is we live in a consumer culture where we are taught in every other area of life that the consumer, the customer, is always right. And somehow we think we're the customer at church, and so we ought to be in a church that caters to our needs, that does what we want it to do, that sings what we want to sing, that prays like we want to pray, that dresses like we want to dress, that it ought to be about us. I want you to watch a video real quickly that kind of takes that to the extreme, but I want you to see the foolishness some of what we do. The truth is that it's tempting sometimes as church leaders to build a me church. But the thing that Jesus says to this lady and the thing that Jesus would say to us as a church is that this is not about us. It's all about Him and His plan and His desire and that our life is to be involved in worshiping Him. Look back at the book of John. And what you have here starting in verse 19 is this woman coming to him and saying, Listen, I can see that you are a prophet. You knew that about my husband's, uh, or my former husband's, my current uh, partner. You knew all of that. I see you're a prophet. And then she pulls out that question, that controversy in verse 20. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where you must worship is Jerusalem. She basically says... What are we supposed to do about this worship stuff? You say you worship here. We say we worship there. Who's right? Now that kind of controversy in their day would have been huge. It would have been the same kind of controversy as whether we're supposed to wear suits or no ties. Whether we're supposed to have short sleeves or always wear a coat. Whether we're supposed to sing praise choruses or only hymns. It was that kind of controversy. It was, as been termed in today, a worship war. What I love about what Jesus does is He says, you've missed the boat completely. Three things that Jesus is going to teach her. First of all, He's going to teach her 
that true worship always comes and includes and involves worshipers. I'll get there in a minute. I know that sounds like a, of course, Pastor. But listen. Verse 21. Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you neither worship Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. He says places in what matters. External is not what matters. And then he says, verse 22, You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father sees. What he says basically in that passage of Scripture is, listen, it doesn't matter about where you are. The first thing that matters is that you are a follower of my Father, that you are a worshiper of Him, and that true worship cannot come from someone unless they are following God's plan. Now, what happens later in Jesus' life is that He will tell us more about that plan, more about what it means to become a worshiper, and He'll talk about laying down His life. He'll talk about accepting Him. He'll tell the disciples about following Him, being baptized. And all of that includes the following of Jesus. And basically what He says to us is, if you do not have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, if you are not a follower of His, then you cannot be a worshiper. And if you are not a worshiper, then you're not worshiping. So the first prerequisite, the first thing that has to be here in the life of anyone that wants to worship is to be a follower of Jesus. He tells the woman this way. We worship the Father as we know Him. You worship something else. The problem is you're not worshiping the right God. It's not that you're worshiping in the wrong place. What he tells us here, and there's an interesting way he phrases it, is that one of God's agendas in life is to turn rebels into worshipers. In fact, God's main agenda on this earth is to turn rebels into worshipers. I want you to think for a minute about a season coming closely. Maybe if we think about it, it'll make us feel like it's here. You know, Christmas is right around the corner. I don't know whether you've seen it or not, but there is stuff in the stores for Christmas. You can go buy a holiday wreath and hang it on your door at 90 degrees outside. That's always good. But Christmas is on the way. And what Christmas is all about is the incarnation. There's a great book by a guy named Max Lucado that titles the incarnation, God Coming Near. And the whole purpose of God coming here, coming to earth, coming near, is because He wanted to turn us rebels into worshipers. That He is seeking each and every one of us to become followers of His. There is no better example of the inclusiveness of God's gospel than what Jesus is doing in John chapter 4 when He goes to a Samaritan woman that has had five broken marriages, that is living with a guy that is not her husband, and yet in the midst of that, He is talking to her about salvation and living water. And shortly... Through this conversation, she will be converted to a follower of His and will become one of the greatest evangelists they would ever see. A rebel turned into a worshiper. I read this week the testimony of a lady named Liz Curtis Higgs. She's a Christian writer. Some of you may have read her stuff, especially ladies. She writes a lot of stuff for ladies. And she was talking about her own conversion experience. And Liz Curtis Higgs was a, a disc jockey. She was a disc jockey in Chicago, I believe, or somewhere in the north, north, uh, northern part of the country. And she was what they call a shock jock. She was 
always pushing the edge, pushing the envelope. In fact, she worked the night shift, and a guy named Howard Stern worked the morning shift. And one time they met in the hall, and Howard Stern told her she needed to calm down her act. That's how out there she was. Liz Curtis Hicks said she had a, a, a friend of hers that kept inviting her to church, and she said, no, no, no. And Liz had been burned in relationship after relationship. She said she became a militant feminist. And so she finally agreed one day, I'll go to church with this lady. And she walked in, and she sat down, and they got there a little late, and the preacher got up and started to preach. And the message for that day was, wives, submit to your husbands. Now, just to be honest with you, church growth people would tell you, if you've got a militant feminist there, you probably don't want to preach on wives, submit to your husband. She said, but what intrigued her is she took her Bible and she looked at the next verse. And it said, and husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. She leaned over to her friend and she just kind of jabbed her and said, you know what? If I had somebody that was willing to die for me, I don't think I'd have a problem submitting to him. And her friend looked at her and said, well, Liz, there is someone that has. Liz Curtis said in that moment that she shared with her about Christ's plan. And she said the most amazing thing to her was that even though she had walked as far away from God as she could, God was constantly pursuing her. What Jesus says to this lady, and it's significant, is that that's the kind of worshiper that God is seeking. Anybody ever played hide and seek? Probably. Eli wanted me to play last night at 9.15. Didn't think that was wise. He said, you just stand here count, Daddy, and I'll go hide. You ever had one of those games, some of you may remember back when you were a child, and you had one of those people that could always hide where you could never find them? You could crawl into a space, they could get in a cranny, they could get somewhere where you couldn't find them. And then the people would look forever until the count was over or you just gave up or you just went home and left them there or whatever. The truth is, some of us think we're real good at hiding from God. But He never misses where we are. He's seeking us constantly. And the first thing that has to happen if you're going to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth, is you have to be a worshiper. And that means that you have to be a follower of Jesus. If you're here this morning and you've never accepted Jesus as your Savior, you don't know what that means, you don't understand what that is, you know your life is in a mess or your life is just missing something. It seems to everybody else it's good, but it's missing something. And this morning you're looking for that purpose, that direction, that life abundantly. But I want to encourage you to find out about at the end of the service, we'll have a time of invitation. I'll be standing here. You can come talk with me. You can find me after the service. There are deacons in this church that would love to help you with that. Seek someone out that you trust. The first thing is that worship always involves worshipers. The second thing is that it always involves worshiping the right God. Always involves worshiping the right God. Now, if you remember the story, she, she's talking to him and Jesus says, that, listen, y'all, y'all worship this God that you kind of know. A little explanation there. They, they only believe the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's all they read. That's all the Samaritans believed. And Jesus was saying, you don't have a complete knowledge of who this God is. 
while the Jews are still discovering that. Now, Jesus would expand this God's image in their mind because He was God in the flesh. But what He was saying is, you are worshiping a God that you think is right but is not. And true worship always involves worshiping the right God. Now, let me just say real quickly, that's not the God you have in your head that you think God ought to be like. That's not the God that you have in your head that you hope God is like. That is who God really is. And when you worship, you have to have a full picture of who God really is. I reference Isaiah 6 a lot because it is a great model of worship and it's also a great model of calling. But in Isaiah 6, when Isaiah sees who God really is, he cries out in disgust. He throws himself on the ground and says, Woe is me. When Jesus would perform His miracles, sometimes He would come, and as the wind and the waters died down, the disciples would fall at His feet. The disciples would say, Oh my goodness, who is this that we have seen? When Moses goes and sees the burning bush, when Moses encounters God, he always comes away different because God is different than we see. When they are up on the Mount of Transfiguration and Jesus is revealed in who He is, suddenly the disciples say, we shouldn't even be here. We need to build some barriers up. What He's saying is, God, we had no idea how great You are. And sometimes we come into this place and we forget how big God is. And we bring our little problems and we think, God, I'm taking care of this here over on the side. I'm not going to give that to you because I can handle it myself. And the reality is our problems that sometimes seem so big fail to even come close to comparing to the size of God. And most of the time the reason that we fail in worship is because we put God in a box of what He will or will not do and we think we can control this. And here's the amazing thing about God. Sometimes when we try to control God, God will step away and let us have what we want. And we'll worship in a wrong way. You know, the truth is that we all in our lives worship something. We're all wired for worship. Scripture says that God has set eternity in the hearts of men, and that means that there's got to be something more out there. If you look at our culture, you can see worship is everywhere because if you turn on the TV, we learn more about Brittany and Lindsay and Prince Charles and Diana than we would ever need to know. I think this is some anniversary of Diana's death right in here, right? Ten years, something like that. I was in college when that happened. You know what I remember about that? It's the thousands upon thousands of people that came and made a shrine to her. I come from West Tennessee. In West Tennessee, there's a little place called Graceland. Anybody ever been to Graceland? I'm not about to get on you. I haven't. I've lived in West Tennessee. I lived there 28 of the first 31 years of my life. Never went to Graceland. But every year, twice in that year, people come and they make a shrine to Elvis. Because he sang about a hunk of hunk of burning love, I guess. Right? I mean, he sings song about don't be cruel and love me tender. And he wiggled his hips a little bit and everybody went, ooh, we got to take flowers to his grave. I didn't say that in West Tennessee. They might have run me out of town. But we worship something. Here's how you know what you worship. What do you give your attention to? 
What do you spend your time? I talked about this a couple weeks ago. Money, talents. What do you give your attention to? And the truth is, part of the reason that many of us don't have the abundant life that God calls us to is because we are giving our time, our money, our talent, our attention to something completely different than the right God. Everyone's wired to worship, and the truth is, everybody is a worshiper. Every one of us is a worshiper. Here's a third thing. Not only do we need to understand that worship comes from worshipers, not only do we need to understand that worship is always directed towards the right God, but we need to understand that true worship always happens in the right way. Now, in this passage of Scripture, what he says to her is that the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. In spirit and in truth. Now, there are two kinds of worship that are wrong. There is there is false worship, which is worshiping the wrong God we talked about just a minute ago. And then there is what we call vain worship. And that's trying to worship God in a way that is not pleasing to Him. And on your handout, you've got listed, there's six ways that you can worship God vainly or in a way that is not pleasing to Him. And we're going to walk through these very quickly, but I want you to understand that many of us are guilty of these on a regular basis. And this morning, my prayer is that God will use this as kind of a, an instrument of surgery to, to show you those things in your own life that you need to bring out. The first way that we worship vainly is when we worship with unconfessed sin. Now, this is the part where uh, some preachers get all fired up about talking to you about sin, and I'm a preacher that doesn't shy away from sin because God's Word is obviously there, but I don't... I don't like telling you about your sin, but the truth is we all sin. Amen? Amen? We all are sinners. We mess up. I mess up every day. If you thought you called a perfect pastor, most of you have already figured out you hadn't. And if you haven't, you will real soon, okay? I mess up all the time. That's the way we are as humans. It's not an excuse. It's a reality. We sin. Verse Chapter, excuse me, Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You know what I love about that verse? If you look at it in the original language, it means you're continually falling short. When it says everybody sins, it means that it's an ongoing thing. That's not you sinned once, and because that God says you can't be with me. What it says is, even if now we had to make our own salvation after having Christ as our Savior, we couldn't do it because we continually sin. We sin. Now the truth is, as Christians, it ought not to feel like it did when we were non-Christians. It ought to have some guilt. It ought to have some, some, some things in there that we want to get rid of, and so we confess it to the Lord. And many of us come into this place on Sunday mornings, and we've got some sins that we've done, and as a result of that sin, we try to worship the Lord, but we've got this thing blocking us. And the only way you're ever going to get to the place where you can worship is when that sin gets out. The second one is conflict. In Scripture it says that if you come to worship and you have conflict with a brother, you don't settle that first. You can't worship the Lord. And some of you are sitting in here this morning and you've got conflict right here, right now, with someone in this room. Maybe it's been there for two weeks. Maybe it's been there for two decades. Maybe the other person knows about it. Maybe they don't. But you can't worship with conflict. Here's the third thing. Sometimes we try to worship with human traditions that replace biblical mandates. Human traditions that replace biblical mandates. In a previous church, 
we took up the offering. And as we took up the offering, they would take the offering out, they would dump the offering in a big box to go get counted. And then the deacons would all line up at the back, and the empty offering plates would be in their hands, and they would walk down to the front as the doxology played, and they would place it on the altar. And after I'd been there for about six weeks, I said, why do we do that? And they said, we're bringing our offering back to God. And I said, well, you're bringing nothing back to Him. Why do we do it? Well, and we found out it used to be because they, were, they wouldn't let anybody count the offering until the service was over. And they thought the safest place to keep the offering was at the altar while the preacher preached. Nobody tried to steal it from there. But that became one of those things. If you touch that, woo! So we just didn't do it the next week. We don't have. We all have human traditions. It's kind of like uh, the lady that would cook a Thanksgiving meal every year, and she'd get the ham out, and she'd cut the end off the ham, and she'd put it in the pan and stick it in there. And one day her daughter said, Mama, why don't we cut the end off the ham and stick it in there? And she said, Well, that's just kind of always the way you've done it. I think that's the way you're supposed to cook it. So she went back and asked her mom, Why don't we cut the end off the ham and we stick it in the pot and we put it in the oven? She said, Well, that's the way my mama always did it. It's just how you cook the ham. And she went back to her mom and said, Why don't you cut the end off the ham, stick it in the pan, put it in the oven? She said, Well, I didn't have a pan big enough for the ham. Right? But suddenly it became the way you have to do it. To be honest with you, wearing your Sunday best is a tradition that comes from America during our agricultural years when the only day they got out and went to town was on Saturday afternoon and Sunday. And so you brought out your non-work clothes on Sunday. It's not a, it's not a big deal to me either way. But that's not something that's biblical. And so we have to watch in worship what songs we sing, what things we say, the prayers we do. Make sure they're not human traditions. Three more real quickly. First of all, if it's emotion without substance. Emotion without substance. Sometimes people come in and they act like they're getting all in the spirit. Things are going. They're raising their hands. Wonderful. Praising God. But there's nothing in their life backing up what they're doing. Now, on the same side, it can be substance without emotion. I have been in some worship services where it is the most dreadful thing to be a part of. I have sung, I will enter His gates with thanksgiving in my heart. I will enter His courts with praise. He has made me glad. Oh, He has made me glad. And you would think that the people had just gotten hit before they walked in. Their faces were downturned. They look like they've lost something important. And they're singing about the fact that Jesus has saved them and made them glad. You can sing victory in Jesus and it sounds like a funeral dirge. Right? We've got to have emotion with it. A few Wednesday nights ago I talked about David who danced with the ark and got back up and his wife said, listen, you just embarrassed yourself the way you were out there dancing around. And he said, I will dance even crazier than that if it's going to glorify my Lord because within me that is what's happening and I have to let it out. Here's the last way worship is made. And that is for our own benefit. Just to be honest with you, if you come here this morning so you can get something out of this, or if you walk away and say it was a good worship service because I did, or it wasn't a good one because I didn't, then you kind of miss the point of worship. It's not for our benefit. And I'll be honest with you, every time that I've had a real 
worship experience with the Lord, I always get benefit, but I never go in with that in mind. Three things about worshiping in spirit and truth. It is thoughtful. That's what he means by truth. It's thoughtful. It's This is who I am. This is what I'm doing. I'm thinking about how great God is. I'm listing the things that God has done for me. I'm going through all that has happened. It is passionate. You may be able to tell that's one of my favorite words because I think it shows that we have apathetically worshipped God for so long that we no longer understand what it means to worship Him with passion. What it means to worship Him with reckless abandon. What it means to worship Him with everything we've got poured into it. What it means to worship Him from down deep in who we are. To sing to Him that He is a great and mighty God. That we can't imagine how wonderful He is. To declare in this place how unbelievable it is that He has taken me, a sinner, someone who is dead, someone who is lost, and I have been given hope and a future and eternity with Him. That one day He will whisk me away from this place and I will be in the very presence of the God who bought me with His own life. It is something we ought to be passionate about. The last thing is it's practical. Romans 12 is the one that says that we are to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. That we are to constantly live for Him. Now this morning, I, I don't know why you're here. I don't know if this is a human tradition that you have, that you come every Sunday. I don't know if you're here investigating what's, what's happening here. You've been visiting a time or two or the first time and you, you wonder what all this is about. I don't know why you're this, that God is here and He wants to have a real, meaningful worship experience with you. Some of you say, well, worship's almost over. No, it's not. For many of us in this place, worship is just beginning today. And as we open our lives to Him and declare how wonderful He is, God will be in the midst of our lives and we will worship Him with me this morning.